baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. We came very close to a catastrophic breakdown of our democratic accountability. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. Right now, we're kind of stuck in this cycle where every summer we're hearing another story about a big fire and a town burning down. It's still extremely difficult to hold government agencies accountable for abuses that take place in the name of national security. This is KCBS In-Depth. Just a few short months ago, as major storms were dropping buckets of rain and snow all across California, hopes were running high that this could be the year that the state's drought conditions finally eased. But by the time January rolled around, the storms had ended, and the past three months have added up to make for the driest start to a California water year on record. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, I'm Keith Menconi, and today on the program, as California heads into what is now likely to be a third year of drought conditions, we're going to take stock of the state's precarious water situation and hear why the impacts of the drought are more far-reaching than many realize. Then, a bit later on in the program, well, of course, in California, where there's drought, there's often fire, but how ready will we be for the fire season ahead? U.S. Forest Service has had staffing issues for a long time. But in California, over the past three years, the problem seems to really have intensified. First up on the program, we're going to get some perspective on where this disappointing rainy season has left us. And for that perspective, we're going straight to the source. Calling in from the UC Berkeley Central Sierra Snow Lab, located high atop the Northern Sierra nearby Donner Pass, going to welcome on now Andrew Schwartz, who is the Snow Lab's manager and lead scientist. Andrew Schwartz, welcome to KCBS In-Depth. Thank you so much for having me, Keith. So uh, again, the Central Sierra Snow Lab, that's a uh, remote snow research outpost, also researching climate up there, uh, thousands of feet above sea level where you're monitoring snow levels throughout the year. And uh, just recently, at the beginning of this month, you took part in the statewide snow survey, which gives us an early snapshot of uh, just how much snowpack California is likely to have in the year ahead. So just to help us get situated in our conversation about the drought, and uh, water usage in California. Talk a little bit about that survey, what it found. Uh, Obviously, I'm sure folks listening have probably heard that the uh, results were pretty disappointing. But I I guess probably the best place to start is what does that work actually look like? So you're going out into the snow, uh, taking samples? Yeah, we go out into the snow and we take these samples using a big hollow aluminum tube. Um, and we go out and, and basically walk in a straight line and then come back and walk in a different straight line um, to try to get the most accurate sampling of the areas possible. Because as most people will tell you, of course, snow drifts, right? Mm. So when we put this tube into the snow, on the outside, there's little inch markings that tell us, first of all, the depth. 
But we also have something uh, that vaguely resembles a fish scale for people that like to go fishing um, to weigh your fish, mm. which is just a spring um, with a little hook on the bottom of it. And when we weigh the little sample of snow that comes out in the middle of the tube, that gives us what we call the snow water equivalent, which is the amount of water contained in the snowpack that can either melt or evaporate. And that's ultimately what we're worried about when we think about our water resources. Because essentially the snowpack itself is just this giant reservoir up in the mountains that is going to melt off and fill the rest of the state up, uh, the streams and rivers and eventually reservoirs up with water. Uh, So when you went up there, uh, you and others, many others uh, throughout the state took those samplings. What did you find? You know, we found a snowpack that was much below what it should have been. It Mm. was only at about 38% of average for what we would want for an average season at this time of year. Um, And that's very unfortunate because, of course, that means that um, we're not going to have a whole lot of water going forward. After February and March, we just don't get as much as we do throughout the winter. So very limited and and not where we want to be. It's going to be another year of drought, unfortunately. Yeah, and I think critically, the way that it's been described in a a couple of different outlets is that this April 1st date is important because that is typically the day when, you know, we've seen the majority of our snowfall already happen and we're beginning to see the melt. So we're kind of at the peak of the amount of snow on the mountains. But this year, it seems like the melt started a lot earlier, actually. You're absolutely right. The April 1st measurement is the measurement that kind of separates when we would expect all of our snowpack to really accumulate and get deeper from when it would start to melt. Unfortunately, because of the dry January and February conditions that we had, it really peaked at about February 8th. And so we've been experiencing melt ever since then. And so realistically, this April 1st isn't ideally the peak that we would want as much as just an already melting snowpack that's way below average. Yeah, so a troubling sign right there. That gives a little bit of a snapshot of where we're at in terms of California's snowpack at the moment. But uh, another reason that I wanted to get you on to the program is that you wrote a recent opinion piece for The New York Times warning that the impacts of these drought conditions that we're seeing will actually be a lot more wide-ranging than many people realize, actually changing the landscape itself, potentially for uh, quite some time. So tell us a little bit about what those impacts are and why you're worried about them. Yeah, the the drought is, or, or the concept of drought, I should say, is one where generally we think of, oh, we haven't gotten enough rain, we haven't gotten enough snow. And that is accurate, but to an extent, one of the kind of side aspects of drought, and is, this is in the definition as well, is that it has to cause a serious hydrological imbalance. And with our uses as humans, as well as, of course, continuing climate change and the ne- uh, necessary water for ecosystems that are now um, changing in the landscape, we have a lot more of a hydrological imbalance than we used to. So that's something to note. And as you mentioned, a significant component of this is our land cover change primarily by forest fire. And what we see is this kind of vicious cycle where, of course, we don't get rain and snow. That means that we dry out our underbrush and our forests a lot faster. We hit peak fire season and then we have these massive and catastrophic fires. Well, one one kind of 
effect of these fires on the landscape is that it rapidly accelerates our snow melt. And it also can affect how much snow is actually captured in various areas. So in addition to not having enough precipitation, now it's becoming harder to manage because we're not seeing the same runoff that we would expect because of these faster melt times. Yeah. Uh, speaking once again to Andrew Schwartz, a manager and lead scientist at the UC Berkeley Central Sierra Snow Lab, uh, hearing about the most recent snow readings and why this summer ahead is looking to be uh, perhaps as dry, just as dry as the last two years. This once again is KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi. So continuing the conversation, another area that you highlighted in your article looking at some of these uh, deeper impacts of the drought is the impact on soil conditions. Those seem to be changing as well. Absolutely. And, you know, this is one of those areas where we as scientists and we as water engineers and in water resources as a whole, we're really focusing because soil traditionally hasn't been focused on nearly as much as, you know, maybe the physics of the snowpack itself or our weather patterns. But with these extended drought periods, and I'll revisit this again, but the influence from fire, we're seeing different soil properties. If we have these long extended dry periods, and then even a moderate to heavy rainstorm, most of that water is going to be soaked up by our soil and our models and our measurements don't do a very good job of representing that currently. Similarly, with these huge burn scars, oftentimes these forest fires can create uh, what we call hydrophobic or water repelling conditions in the soil. So we can have these large fires, snow or rain then falls on top of the soil. And rather than a nice gentle trickle through the landscape, like you would hope to replenish our reservoirs, we can get these large catastrophic floods after lots of water falls onto these burn scars. Now, that's in a severe case and maybe a little bit of a less severe burn area, kind of the opposite happens. We remove the vegetation from the top of the soil, which again, dries that out, and then it becomes a giant sponge for anything that new, new that falls onto it. So there can be varying degrees of fire effects on our soil, but the big thing is that they are occurring and we're not measuring or monitoring them near as well as we should. Right. And so that sets up the next part of the conversation and the next set of issues that you outlined in your opinion piece, which is essentially that given how much is changing about how our water system is working and how the landscape is treating that water, the models that we've been using to predict water usage aren't really up to date anymore. They don't really predict how this uh, water system is actually going to work. And that has some serious implications for our ability to predict how much water we're going to have any given year. That's absolutely correct. Yeah. A lot of these models and depend uh, on calculations on various correlations that were made decades ago, before we were at this point in time with climate change, before we'd had this large amount of land cover change. Uh, and so they're not gonna represent today's conditions as well as they potentially could. Uh, well, another complication of this is that water management agencies as well as researchers don't always use the same models. They were all kind of developed independently. So whereas of course us scientists, we love our physics, right? We wanna see every little bit of science going on within the snow and within water. We use these super complicated models. Whereas some of the agencies that may want to keep it simpler might just use simple correlations. We got so much snow, so we're looking forward to so much water without 
much input in the physics side of things. So it's kind of a complicated mess of trying to figure out what models people are using and how do we improve those given the changes that have occurred through things like climate change. All right. So uh, some big questions uh, about the modeling, but just to bring this back down to earth, what, what kinds of uh, tangible problems could this cause for California um, if, if we don't have more accurate models uh, about how much water we're going to be having coming in from year to year from, you know, the perspective of uh, the government or local planners? What, what kinds of issues might that cause? You know, ultimately, with these types of weather patterns and this weather whiplash that we see so often, if we don't address these issues with the weather models and with our management practices, um, this could potentially lead to similar conditions that we've already seen a little bit in California, but more in Australia, where entire towns are going dry and they're having to have water shipped in uh, so that they can use it in their faucets and use it in their showers. Uh, because and we won't see it coming. And that's exactly it. We will not see it coming until it's too late. Um, it's one of those things where we have this long period of drought and we're kind of crossing our fingers that we're going to get out of it and we're going to have several good years of water. But what if we don't? What happens then? Um, and, and the consequences for not preparing for that could be dire. But on the positive side, it's not all doom and gloom. As individual citizens, it becomes really frustrating seeing the various problems that are arising uh, with our natural resources on a daily basis, whether that be with climate change, our water, the ecosystems, whatever it might be. One silver lining to water in the West is that we can have a direct impact on it. Our actions can have a much larger impact on it if we decide to hold ourselves accountable. If we can limit our water resources and make sure that we stay in contact with what um, we can do in terms of conservation, then ultimately that will pay off in the future, at least to some small extent. Yeah, so clearly a lot more questions to be answered and a lot of work to be done as we head into what is likely to be yet another hot, dry California summer. We are going to round things out right there, though. Uh, we have been speaking one last time to Andrew Schwartz. He is the manager and lead scientist at the UC Berkeley Central Sierra Snow Lab, perched atop the Northern Sierra. Andrew Schwartz, thanks for joining us, and uh, thanks for keeping an eye on the snow. Thank you so much for having me, Keith. Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. Today in the program, California is heading out of the rainy season with a lot less precipitation than many had hoped. And as we've been hearing, that means drought conditions are likely to continue into a third year. Up next, well, of course, here in California, a dry winter is often followed by a combustible summer. 
But even as fire agencies begin to staff up for fire season, recent reporting has raised some serious questions about recruitment shortfalls facing the U.S. Forest Service. Shortfalls that could mean fewer firefighters ready to man the lines when the next major fire disaster breaks out. We're going to hear more about that story from the guy who wrote it. That would be Curtis Alexander, who is an enterprise reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. Curtis Alexander, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Keith. So again, talking about a decline in the number of U.S. Forest Service firefighters. Uh, so that's federal firefighters working in California. Tell us what you found. How big of a drop are we talking about here? The U.S. Forest Service has had staffing issues for a long time, I'd say at least 10 years. But in California, over the past three years, the problem seems to really have intensified. In 2020 and prior to 2020, there were about 5,000 federal firefighters with the Forest Service based in California. But slowly that number has fallen. And last year, at the peak of fire season, there were fewer than 4,000 firefighters based in the state. So that's a drop of more than 1,000 employees, about 20% of the workforce, a little more than 20% of the workforce. So it really is significant. Yeah, so uh, a pretty dramatic drop right there. What does that mean in terms of firefighting capabilities? Well, part of the problem is that we've seen more and more fires and more and more acreage burned in recent years at the same time that the Forest Service has lost employees. So basically, there's not as many people putting out these fires, and that leaves more of a threat to homes and communities and people. The Forest Service has tried to fill some of their firefighting gaps by bringing in firefighters from outside of the state. Um, the Forest Service is the is the nation's largest wildland firefighting force. So they have people from all over the country that they regularly bring in, depending on where the fires are at. But these firefighters aren't always trained in uh, the steep Sierra Nevada terrain that that is here in the state. And they can't always get here that, that quickly either. Um, so it's an imperfect solution. The Forest Service also tries to, or they have contracts with a lot of local and private fire agencies. So when there are shortfalls, they'll tap these contracts and bring in local firefighters. But again, these firefighters don't always have the training. So it's a lot different situation. Yeah, speaking with Curtis Alexander once again with the San Francisco Chronicle. And in your reporting, you actually point to some uh, specific questions raised about firefighting capabilities during last year's fire season, specifically uh, some questions about the response to the Caldor fire, which uh, was the fire that swept across the Sierra Nevada mountain range last summer, uh, threatening uh, South Lake Tahoe. Uh, some folks um, feeling that if more firefighting resources had been available, the response may have been more effective? Yeah, the Caldor fire was a tough one last year. It basically burned in the El Dorado National Forest, and that forest had several fire engines that weren't staffed because of the staffing shortfalls with the Forest Service. But in talking with the firefighters up there, it's it's debatable about how much having a few extra fire engines would have helped stop that fire, or at least curb it initially before it grew into the inferno that it was. But when you talk with the residents up there, and even one of the county supervisors that I spoke to, said that um, they just don't trust that the Forest Service is acting fast enough when it comes to stopping a fire before it grows into something really, really big. And those concerns are, are also echoed by um, 
a lot of the politicians, there were congressmen last year that represent parts of the rural Sierra Nevada that jumped on the Forest Service for not tackling fires quickly enough. And even Governor Gavin Newsom charged the Forest Service with letting fires burn and not putting them out fast enough. And just again, to highlight one of the points that you already made, this is an especially difficult set of facts to be contending with right now as the fire threat in California grows ever higher, you know, when we need these uh, firefighters most. Yeah, this is going to be a tough year, the experts are telling me, when it comes to fire season. We're entering a third-year drought. There's not a lot of water flowing in our rivers and creeks to moisten the landscape. Fuel moistures, meaning um, the dead uh, the dead trees and grasses, the live vegetation, the moisture levels there are extraordinary at extraordinarily low levels, in some cases at record levels. Soil moisture is low. All the conditions are in place to make for a pretty bad fire season, a very flammable landscape. Um, the other thing that I would add about this fire season, which makes it even worse, is that the rain we did get over the over the winter came at the front end of the wet season instead of the back end, meaning that things have already started to dry out. The months of January, February, and March were incredibly dry. So that means the fire season is going to start earlier and it's going to potentially last longer. The years where we've seen big fire seasons have not only been years following dry winters, but following the winters where the precipitation came largely at the beginning of the winter rather than at the end. Yeah. All right. So in for a potentially uh, very volatile year, I'm just going to reintroduce you real quick. Uh, We are speaking once again to Curtis Alexander, an enterprise reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. This is KCBS In-Depth talking today about the dry, dry conditions that we are leaving this rainy season with and the potential consequences for California as we enter fire season and also, you know, try to manage our water resources throughout the year. So we've set the table a little bit in terms of the the fire risks that might be up ahead. Uh, We do know that fire agencies, whether we're talking at the federal level or talking about CAL FIRE at the state level, we do know that they are trying to ramp up that hiring right now, uh, especially early this year, given some of those risks that you're talking about. So let's speak now about what the challenges really are. Uh, Curtis Alexander, why has it been such uh, a challenge for the Forest Service to get more firefighters to join the ranks? I think first off, the work is really, really hard. I mean, we're talking about digging lines and cutting down trees under smoky, sunny skies for 16 hours of 16 hours a day and often going several weeks without a day off. Um, I mean, it is just grueling work. Um, you're away from home. Um, often you're sleeping on the side of the road. Um, I've talked to firefighters that just basically throw their sleeping bags out at the end of the day on the ground, and um, that's home for them for the summer. Um, Last year and the year before that, for that matter, we were also dealing with the coronavirus, and that sidelined a lot of people, whether firefighters were sick or their families were sick, or during the coronavirus and the pandemic, a lot of people sort sort of made decisions about about what they want to be doing and what they don't want to be doing. And some of them did decide that firefighting was something that they didn't want to do anymore. And then finally, and this is um, especially true in California, is just the cost of living has gone up. And um, historically, the Forest Service had has paid very low, very, very low wages. Um, 
the entry level firefighters last year were making about $13.45 an hour, which is less than the California minimum wage. Um, firefighters at other agencies can make sometimes double that. Um, so when you're talking about this really hard work and you're not making a lot of money, um, that's a hard way to recruit and retain firefighters. But there does seem to be some talk of raising wages, putting more money into this problem. What have we been hearing so far? Yeah, there has been talk, and there's been more than talk. Actually, last year, President Biden, when he found out that uh, federal firefighters were making such low wages, which he called um, ridiculously low, I believe, um, he he basically directed the agency to begin paying federal firefighters at least $15 an hour. So their wages did go up. Um, also, there was the federal infrastructure bill passed by con- Congress and signed by the president last year, which includes $600 million dedicated to raising firefighter pay. Uh, the plan, which is currently being worked out, it hasn't been finalized yet, is to give firefighters either twice as much as they're making or $20,000 more a year, whichever is less, um, which is good. It would put them pretty close to getting paid what state and local firefighters make. Uh, The only problem with that is the federal infrastructure bill funding is limited. It would run out eventually, so Congress would have to step in and continue the funding for that higher pay. And then finally, there is a standalone congressional bill called TIMS Act, which um, would permanently, if it passed, increase firefighter pay, I think, to around $20 an hour. And uh, in addition, it would provide other types of benefits, including retirement, housing stipends, and mental health services. And I think the mental health component of that often gets lost in the discussion. Not only is firefighting a physically demanding job, but it can be really can be really mentally stressful, and um, the people doing it don't always have the means to seek out help when they need it. Yeah, well, just taking this all together, I mean, it's it's striking the fact that we have been hearing so much about extra investment in California's firefighting resources over the past years. Uh, we've been talking about fuel management, prescribed burns, uh, extra hardware that is going online. But uh, fundamentally, when it comes to battling fire on the fire lines, that is uh, a human endeavor. You need people to do that. And uh, if we are in a place where it is difficult because, you know, California is so expensive and, and the federal wages uh, aren't what uh, people need them to be, uh, if, if we are in a place where we can't get those people to go to the fire lines, that is going to hamstring a lot of these uh, broader efforts, it seems. So uh, I, I guess overall, maybe to close this out, you know, give us your thoughts on how we should be feeling about the broader effort in California right now to uh, address the fire challenge that we've been hearing so much about over the past few years. And, you know, we've we've hoped for a long time we could get some leverage on. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think if we are going to make progress on this issue, firefighters need to be paid more. And I think the past couple of years have been a wake-up call to how severe the fire crisis is. And 
just that we've seen signs of, even if it's a little bit of money, people are paying attention to how little firefighters are making. And I, I think um, while the wages isn't everything, it's not like the job is going to change. The nature of the work is going to be hard. It's going to get harder as fire seasons get longer. But showing more respect for firefighters and offering them more pay is likely to keep more of them around. And um, like you said, we're going to need it because fires aren't going to get easier, at least in the next couple of years. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, a lot of important questions to follow, especially as we head into this particular fire season. We have been speaking once again to Curtis Alexander, an enterprise reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. Curtis Alexander, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In Depth, I'm Keith Manconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to KCBS In Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 